we are back in another psalm tonight, Psalm number 27. I hope yet you are still there. I'm looking forward to seeing what the Lord uh, can reveal from this particular psalm. You know, there are, as I've at least come to study them, I think there are good ways and bad ways to read and interpret many of the psalms, especially those from the beloved King David. I think the bad way to read... The Psalms is just to uh, read them from the standpoint as if the one who is writing them has it all figured out, so to speak. (laughs) As if he is writing from a place of achievement or accomplishment. As if he's some sort of lecturer saying, here's the things I've figured out. (laughs) It almost makes them come across as if he's this stuffy, scholarly theologian. And he's writing about all the ways in which he has figured out, so to speak, the Christian life. And actually, I think that's... That's, I think, the bad way to read them. (laughs) Um, Because when you read the Psalms, they are a lot more desperate, I think. If you put yourself right in that moment, put yourself in David's shoes, so to speak, or Asaph's, or Moses's, or whoever is writing the particular Psalm you're, you're reading, remember just how desperate they were. They were Psalms from people, we could say, who've been there. You know, that old phrase, they've been around the block. (laughs) That's many of the Psalms. I think that's one way. That, that I think, is the the better way to read the Psalms. They are words. They are lyrics. They are lines from those who've been in very dark days. They have endured a lot of tragedy, of heartache, of turmoil. And, yes, they're writing some of these words that were meant for corporate worship. But, again, they were Psalms from men... Who've been there and back again, so to speak. A better way that I have come to read the Psalms, at least, is just to read them from the standpoint of David or whoever, again, is is writing them as if he's trying to convince himself about what he's writing about. It's it's sort of like when you go to your journal and you're, you're writing in your journal and you're almost like convincing yourself about what you're writing about as you're writing about it. And I think that's very indicative of a lot of the Psalms. I think one of the best examples of that is Psalm 119, where for 176 verses, what is David talking about? Wow, how much he loves the word. And then what's the very last verse? The very last verse of Psalm 119 is just the confession that David is still a sheep who goes astray. And he prays in the very last verse of this 176 verse psalm. God, don't stop seeking me. Don't stop going after me, your, your sheep who continually goes astray. And yet for 175 verses, he's praised how much he's devoted, how much he loves, how much he cherishes and delights in the words and the testimonies and the laws and the statutes and the judgments of God. Which is just to say, he has to remind himself of that a lot. Because what he reveals at the end is he forgets it a lot. <laughs> That's a good way, I think, to read the Psalms. Is that he's... Writing these words in the midst of those dark days, in the midst of those moments in his life where he's literally at his wit's end. And I almost get this picture in my mind, in my mind's eye as he's going through some tragedy, some turmoil that he's, he's hastening to his prayer room, his prayer closet, so to speak. And he doesn't get out his computer. He opens up a scroll and he starts penning these words. These words that are his prayers that he's praying, not because he believes them uh, 100% because he wants to believe them. He's writing down, I think, what he wants to believe. (laughs) 
Because how many of you have been in times in your life where you're much like the man in Mark chapter 9? I believe, but help my unbelief. I think that's very indicative of David. David, in many of the Psalms, he's writing from a place of, God, help my unbelief. Because I'm struggling with this. I'm going through something. <laughs> I'm going through a very uh, a, a moment of, uh, of intense heartache. And he's writing and he's convincing his soul as he's writing, as the spirit is working on him, as the, God's words are flowing in and through him. He's being convinced of how true they are. And I think that's where we get a lot of the Psalms that we love and we cherish. They are his struggles and his sorrows sort of put to song, so to speak. It's how he was coping with all of these untold struggles he went through. And I think that's a really good way to view this particular psalm. Which I think has a really interesting theme. As we're going to go through it, I think that will kind of be revealed to you. But I think there's three lessons in Psalm 27. That I think David was trying to remind himself and convince himself of. At the same time as he's writing these words and using them to sing perhaps in a corporate fashion. So three lessons. The first one tonight is just this. A lesson about urgency. A lesson about urgency. Notice verse 1 as he begins. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's a very memorable verse, a memorable refrain. I'm, I think it's been put to song a couple of times by some composers and arrangers. At least that's, uh, I have it in my head at least. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it though. Um, but I think this is very much one of those instances where David is convincing himself of what he needs. And reminding himself of just how good his God is because that's the type of God that he needs. <laughs> He's clearly in distress. Even we can just grasp that just from this one verse. Why else would he need a God who is light, who is a rescue, who is a strength, who is a a life for him, unless he was nearing those moments where it is darkness, where it is it is hopeless, unless he was in a place where he needs rescuing. (laughs) He's singing about the God that he desperately needs here. It's evident. That these were tough days. Again, look at verse 2 as he just confesses. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh. What graphic words. They stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. Even though he is surrounded by all of these enemies he's being besieged you get the picture again like we were talking about this morning out of second Kings six elisha is surrounded by that syrian invading army and notice the prayer though an host should encamp against me my heart shall not fear what does elisha say to his servant fear not <laughs> again here david is in the same sort of predicament Surrounded by those who want to tear him down. Surrounded by those who are against him. Who are beleaguering him with such a constant uh, assaults. Both perhaps physical and emotional and psychological. And yet, even though there's this overwhelming force that is against him. Even as he was enduring this untold difficulty. Notice, I love how he says, in this will I be confident. He's resolved to worship. 
Resolved to worship this Lord as he says, this Lord who is my light, my strength, my salvation, my life. It's the God of his need. But I love how he says, so what is he confident in? Notice what he's confident in. Look at verses 4 through 6 because he mentions something five times and he uses different sort of names for this thing that he mentions five times and I want to see if you can pick it up on it but notice he says verse four one thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord to to inquire in his temple for in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me he shall set me up upon a rock And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies, round about me. Therefore, while I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy, I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. You notice five times in three verses, he mentions, uh, he makes reference to the house of God. He calls it house of the Lord. He calls it his temple, his pavilion, and his tabernacle twice. This one thing that he desires is what? To hasten to the place of God's presence. Above all else. In this really difficult season, whatever he's going through, we don't perhaps know exactly when this psalm was written in David's life, but some have made it sort of after David is running away from uh, King Saul and in between where he's hiding in the caves of Adullam. It's somewhere in 1 Samuel 20, around that range. Uh, Some historians have said, but again, we don't really have any clue as to uh, that being true. But regardless, he's in some very difficult straits, so to speak. And yet, what does he desire above all else? What does he long for? What does he wish for? He wants to be where God is. He wants to be in God's presence, in God's house, because he knows that's where he's going to find refuge. That's where he's going to find rest and solace and relief. That's where his confidence is. He knew that's what he needed. He was urgent. (laughs) He had this sense of urgency to be where God was, which for him was the tabernacle. Again, think about where David knows where God is worshipped. It's in a pop-up tent, so to speak. A place that for them was easily put up and put down. It's not something permanent. Again, that's why David has that desire in his life to build a permanent dwelling place for God. Of course, which we know that God prevents and Solomon builds it. But again, that's where he knows where God is. He wants to be there. That's where he wants to go. Where Where do we encounter the Lord's presence? Of course, it's everywhere. But for us, it's the church preeminently. This is... What we would call God's house. It's not just a building. It's not just brick and mortar and sheetrock and all those sorts of things. This is the place where we encounter the Lord. And I wonder, just ask yourself, just don't raise your hand, don't speak out loud. When we're undergoing seasons of just severe stress and trial and sorrow and struggle, is the church our first resort? Can we say like David, and he prays here, is the church the first place we want to go? When we're going through those really difficult days, those days that we just want to get behind us. We're in them, and they're all around us, and all we can see is just frustration and heartache and hurt. 
Do we say like David, more than anything else, I want to be in your house? And if not, why? I wonder why. Because I feel like some perhaps have that feeling. And I think it's because of one, no, it's probably a bunch of things. Maybe your frustration and heartache comes from people in church. That's often what happens sometimes. But I think also too, more more commonly I could say, is that I think sometimes we've associated church with lecturing. (laughs) I think there's this connotation some have that when it comes to church and church attendance, that going to church is the place where you go to get lectured to once a week. (laughs) And I think it's telling that when people think of that word preaching, what did they think of? <laughs> they think you're going to get scolded. <laughs> they think you're going to get reprimanded. And in fact, that's one of the most, uh, that's one of the definitions of preaching. If you just look it up in a dictionary, it says, uh, one of the definitions is to give moral advice to someone in an annoying or pompously self-righteous way. <laughs> that's one of the definitions, which I think is funny, which also I think is I'd wager, I'm not a betting man, but I'd wager that that's probably the one that most people think of. I think there's a Madonna song about preaching or being preached to or something. Anyways, I don't know why that was in my head, but it was (laughs) for some reason. But regardless, I think that's representative of what people think of. Church is a place where you get preached to, where you get lectured to. You get told all the things you've done wrong and why you've screwed up and why you will never measure up. And perhaps part of that is true. And I think perhaps in the past some preachers have played into that connotation with sermons that are overly berating. And I would say yes, definitely the scriptures call us to call out people. First or Second Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And I think sometimes some preachers, I won't name names, <laughs> they hone in on that reproof part. And that's all that they use the scriptures for. as like a two by four over sinners' heads. But I would say this. Lectures don't inspire people to love their Savior. You can't lecture people into the love of God. You can talk about a lot of different finer points of scriptural truth and and things like that. But you know what only bring... The only thing that brings people into the love of God is love itself. The Reverend Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite orators, he says this, quote, We cannot lecture men into the love of Christ. We can win them to it only by showing Christ's love to them. And I would wholeheartedly agree. You know why I think David felt this urgency to get to church? (laughs) If you'll pardon that analogy. I think it's because he knew what he, he would hear when he got there. He knew what he would be uh, hearing when he got to that place. For him, it was the law. And it was the law that reminded him of how much he needed a deliverer. That was the whole point of it, by the way. But I think he had that excited and that eager anticipation to hasten, as he says here, the one thing that I desire above all else is to go into your temple, to go into the place where I can be with you, God. Because he knew when he got there what he would hear about. 
Which brings me to my second lesson. The first lesson is a lesson about urgency. The second lesson is a lesson about expectancy. Because it goes kind of right along with it. I think the most essential question when it comes to the topic of church attendance is just this. What are you expecting to hear when you sit in the pews? What, what are you hoping the preacher preaches about? Because I think if you come to church and you're expecting to hear something and then you don't hear that thing, you can kind of sometimes I feel like become really frustrated because you're not hearing this thing that you hope you hear about. And it might eventually leave you so frustrated that you might leave church altogether. And I'll ask myself a complicated question. Is that the fault of the preacher or the listener? I think it depends. <laughs> so it's not a very good answer. But I think there are very often times where the needs of the sheep call for very specific preaching. Call for very specific proclamation. To go to the word and say this is what God's word says. Thus saith the Lord of course. But I would say in the average. The overall I would say that much of what we have come to assume. I would say especially in the American church. The church of the west if you will. Is that churchgoers come to church expecting to have their ears itched. As Paul used the phraseology. In first uh, I think that's 2 Timothy 4. He talks about. Well, let me just go there. I won't just reference it. I'll read it. So I think this goes right along with what the psalmist here is talking about. Second Timothy chapter 4 and this great pastoral letter that Paul gives to Timothy. Listen to these words. Second Timothy 4, 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine... But after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. He is referencing this time where people will come into the house of God. And rather than hear the words of God they would rather just hear it, uh, things that uh, are attractive to them. The prophet Isaiah references this in Isaiah chapter 30 verse 10. Where he talks about how these that come into the house of God only want to hear smooth things. It's a, actually, I'll just read that verse too really quick. You don't have to turn there, but you can note it. It's Isaiah 30 verse 10 because it's a pretty stark verse when it comes to what will happen in these sorts of days. Well, I'm going to, write, I'm going to jump back up to verse number 8. Now go write it before them. This is Isaiah 30 verse 8 in a table and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. That this is a rebellious people. Lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not. And to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. Speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. (laughs) That's what some, I think, (laughs) you might say that's a little harsh, but I think that's perhaps what some want to hear when they go into church. I don't, want to, I don't want to have this preacher preach to me. I want him to preach smooth things. To itch my ears to what I have in my fancies, so to speak. And that's why Paul, under the power of the Spirit, back in 1 Timothy 4, or 2 Timothy 4, just says, what is he, this warning to Timothy? Preach the word. That's a simple three-word phrase just to stick with what you have, Timothy. Which is to say, I think... 
preachers have a fairly defined message that they are called to proclaim. A pretty, I would say narrow, but also beautiful thing that they are called to lift up. It's a message that I would say that is absorbed and it calls others to be absorbed with this overwhelming glory of God. And did you know what? I just love here back in Psalm 27. This is what David was expecting. Look at Psalm 27 verse 4. Because he says, one thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. That's what he was desiring. That's what he was expecting. He was expecting to come into that place and just be enthralled. To be overcome, as he says here, by the beauty of the Lord. It's this Lord who is all kind, all faithful, all powerful, all knowing, all loving, all merciful God. When he comes into that place as he says that pavilion that covert that covering of incredible mercy that's what he's expecting to hear about and I would say that this lord of beauty this beauty of the lord that he's expecting to hear about and see as he comes into that place is precisely seen through this encounter with the promises of god so he's he has this urgency to come into the church and he has this expectancy and the the thing that he expects to hear i would say most above all else is these promises of god notice verse 2 Because he says, when the wicked, even my enemies and foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Notice how that verse is in the past tense. He's referencing the fact that there have been enemies before, and they've all been met with the same fate. And I think what's really fascinating is that little phrase, eat up my flesh. It's a very graphic phrase. But actually, I think, might have a slight connection to, I'll just read, I'll, I'll read it, you can note this too. It's 1 Samuel 17, verse 44, which you might know is a verse that is a taunt from the giant Goliath, whom David fought. Verse 44 of 1 Samuel 17 says, And the Philistines said unto David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. So some have perhaps thought that David was referencing that taunt. <laughs> and it makes sense too when he says that this enemy too stumbled and fell. And great was the fall of Goliath, we could add. <laughs> but you have here this assertion this declarative faith in the fact that enemies have risen before and you have caused them to stumble and fall and yes i know for sure that this will happen again and i know for sure that all of the things that i expect to hear when i come into your place is how you god have promised to do that over and over and over again for your children enemies rise And God, you stamp them down. Enemies come about and you are my place of covert. You are my place of refuge. It stands to reason, as I think David here does in this very place, that even this current onslaught of foes and enemies and and, and frustration 
will be totally destroyed by the fact that this God is a deliverer. A God who delivers. It gives him courage, I would say. It gives him confidence. And he says, in this I will be confident. What is he being confident in? The promises of God who has worked in the past, who is working in the present, and who will work in the future. This was his solace and his security. Notice verse 5. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. And we can say well along with him a hearty amen. Precisely because he knows what God is doing. Even if he doesn't see it. He knows the promises of God. He shall hide me. He shall lift up my head. He will meet his people where they are. So in David's greatest need, what he needed to hear most was what? What God has done and will do. And in fact, that's sort of a theme throughout the Psalms. Many of the Psalms have that same sort of notes to them. They go back to what God did to reassert in the present, this is what God will do for us now and forever. They go back to the days of Israel's wanderings, to Israel's rebellions. And they, they, there's many psalms that do that. They go back to those days of devastation and they talk about how God delivered them and how they can be confident in the fact that this God will deliver them even now into the future. And this is why David can sing. He sings with this joy that comes from the depths of his soul. Yes, because he knows, as we sung, that this God hides our lives in the clefts of the rock, in the depths of his love. This is what God did for David. And this is what he expected to hear. He had this urgency to come to church when he needed it most. He had this expectancy because he knew what he was going to hear when he got there. But I love the turn uh, in verse 6 and 7. Which brings us to our last lesson in this text. A lesson about urgency. A lesson about expectancy. And then lastly, a lesson about vulnerability. A lesson about vulnerability. Because notice the shift in tone. From verse 6 to verse 7. He has this confidence as we just sung about or, or talked about. This singing that fills him with. Uh, he says I will sing. Yeah I will sing praises unto the Lord. And then notice verse 7. Hear O Lord when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. He goes from. Just singing the anthems of who his God is. This God of light and love and salvation. And here he goes, God help me, God hear me, God please answer me. He's crying out for help and for mercy. And I take this to sort of be indicative of David stepping over the threshold to the temple. And he knows now that he's inside. He's in the presence of his Lord. He understands why he's there. He recognizes why he's there. And what's that? Not to show off his religiosity. 
Not to stand there like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 and say, God, look at all the things that I've done. Look at all the ways that I've lived up to your law. Look at all the ways that I have so totally followed you. Look at how much I have it together. (laughs) No, actually the exact opposite of that. He's there because he can confess his weakness and his vulnerability. Just listen to how weak David knows he is in these verses. Listen, hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When thou saidst, seek my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Deliver me not over to the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me. And such as breathe out cruelty, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Does that sound like one who had it all together? (laughs) Does that sound like a man who had it all figured out, all his ducks in a row, everything was buttoned up? (laughs) It sounds like... This is one that we can relate to because he knows his weaknesses. He feels desperate. Do you notice how desperate he is? God, please just turn to me. Don't turn away. Turn to me and hear me. I want to see your face. He's desperate for that mercy. He reminds God, hey God, I've responded in obedience. Notice he says, you told me to seek you. I've sought you out. God, please turn to me. And he's trusting in this promise. That even when others forsake him, as he references his father and mother, which I take to be somewhat metaphorical, that those who are closest to him, they've turned their back on me. God, I know I'm trusting in your promise that you will not. And it's fascinating to me that he even confesses in verse number 13. Unless I had believed, he would have fainted. Without what I believed in, which is a gift from you, God, my faith comes from you. He is basically saying, unless I had that, I would have fallen. I would have faltered. I would have stumbled. He would have fainted. You see, David was well aware of how weak he was. When he walked into that place, the place of God's presence, he knew why he was there. Not because he was a victorious Christian king. Because he was a weak and desperate sinner who needed this Lord and Savior, this refuge, who needed this Redeemer above all else. He knew that it was God's, we could say promise, but also his his prerogative to strengthen people who are weak. Notice I love how he says, wait on the Lord, verse 14, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. It's part of his promise. God loves to strengthen weak people because weak people are all that there are. 
And he relishes, as he references in, in verse 11, teaching and, and in delivering and in lifting up the heads of those who wait upon him. It reminds me of that beautiful verse. I'm sure you know it. From Isaiah verse four, uh, chapter 40, verse 31, where the prophet says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's what David knew and believed. And I would say, as we referenced at the beginning, this is what he's convincing himself of. <laughs> That God, you are a God who strengthens weak people. And I am so uplifted by the fact that David never shied away from this. This is, again, just one example out of hundreds that we could go to. Where David, the man we know as the man after God's own heart, came into God's presence. Came into that place where he knew he could commune with God and he could be 100% vulnerable. Say, God, I don't have it all together. I would just say that that's what the church is for too. The church is not a place for those who have it all together. And it's not even for those who think that they do. The church is for those who know that they don't have it all together. Know that they are broken. The old Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs says this. Quote, the church of Christ is a common hospital. Wherein all, are, wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other. <laughs> it's that perhaps cliched phrase that I think has a lot of truth to it. That the. The church is not a sanctuary for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And notice it's not a hospital for quote the unsaved. It's a hospital for sinners. Because sinners are all that there are. Some sinners who have yet to experience the covering grace of God that saves them. And some sinners who have experienced that. But sinners they are nonetheless. And the church is for them. The church is... For the broken, for those who need a physician. (laughs) That's what Christ has come to be. And that's why the church is a place of belief. (laughs) Belief that's not always 100% firm. It's belief that sometimes struggles. That belief that sometimes wavers. That experiences afflictions. I think that's why that, that prayer that I referenced this morning that I hasten to reference tonight is the prayer that I think is indicative of the church. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That basically sums up the life of David. And I would say that I hope it sums up our lives too because we know what type of people we are. We're weak, but we have a very strong Savior. One of my friends, he, he shared this picture this week, and I couldn't help but including it in tonight's sermon. <laughs> and in the picture, it's just a quote, and it's from this old theologian, and he says, quote, Christ died for sinners, which means you qualify. <laughs> and I think that's very good. Only to say that when we come across that threshold, that's what we are. We're not here to brandish 
what we think we've accomplished for God. We're here to receive a bountiful blessing, a bountiful gift from God's word, which assures us that he meets weak people in their weakness to fill them with their strength. And we come here expecting to hear that word of promise. And that's why we can come here with a sense of urgency, because we know that when this word is opened, that's what's declared. That's what's proclaimed. That's what's announced. With all gusto and passion and force. These words of promises. From the word of God himself. May we then be a people who believe. And pray to God. Help our unbelief. (laughs) Let us pray.